other than we try to catch one outtake in the pre in the pre and post conversational banter just to kind of um, as a humorous we call it the soft start of the yeah. book, of the show so say something funny right now now just now <laughs> Are you saying that I should say something funny? Because I right now, yes, yes. Just... No, sorry. <laughs> Damn it. JavaScript forever. Uh, that's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. All right. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Beam Radio. I am Sophie DiBenedetto and I am joined today by a pretty packed set of co-hosts. And I think you guys will understand why everybody wanted to be here today when I introduce our guest. But we have got Lars Vickman. Hey, Lars. Hello, hello. We've got Stephen Nunez. Oh, hi there. Hi, Stephen. Your beard is longer than ever. Looking good. And he's combing his beard with his fingers for anybody listening. And Bruce Tate. Hey, Bruce. Hi from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And today we have a very exciting guest that I think we're all very eager to talk to. We are thrilled to welcome Sasha Yurik. You guys probably know Sasha as the author of Elixir in Action, which has its third edition out now, uh, alongside his many other contributions to the Elixir and Beam community. Welcome, Sasha. Hey, thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. So glad that you could join us. So one thing that we always like to ask our guests to do when they first join us is to tell us a little bit about how you got into Elixir in the first place. Cast your mind back. What brought you into the Elixir community? Oh, yeah. It's been like uh, more... I think that this year I'm celebrating 10 years with Elixir. And uh, a few years earlier, uh, I actually started working in production with Erlang, right? So it was around 2010 when I started with Erlang, when I entered the Beam community. Uh, back then, we needed to do like a, a server-side push of, of some sort. Uh, and, you know, at that time, uh, that, that was like still fairly, you know, pretty, pretty fresh and fairly exotic. And uh, Erlang was one of the few technologies that was like able... Uh, to, to help us do this in a, in a reasonable and sane way. And so that's how I got into Beam. And uh, I was pretty uh, pretty blown away, you know, immediately, you know, right off the bat. Uh, but uh, I was also, you know, as uh, previously I used to do uh, like uh, languages such as Ruby, for example, and uh, C Sharp. Uh, and, you know, I found some things in Erlang uh, somewhat lacking and I was looking for, always looking for some uh, alternative that will help me, you know, uh, get similar benefits with, uh, with having like maybe better developer uh, experience. Uh, and uh, that's how I stumbled into Elixir a few years later. Uh, you know, Elixir basically somehow uh, happened concurrently to, uh, to my, uh, my path of learning Erlang. And so uh, I discovered it in, uh, I think, originally in... Uh, 2012 or something and then uh, a year later i actually started uh playing with it with it more seriously when i started my own blog and i was like blown away but by how mature it was even in pre pre 1.0 stage you know and uh i pretty much quickly introduced it into that production that i was working on so it was a mix of erlang and elixir one of the first uh, in the world i would say not definitely not the first elixir production but one of the first uh ones and one of the first that was using like the mix of the two languages uh and yeah ever since i've been a very happy happy user of the uh beam languages of especially of elixir so very cool to hear that you feel that some of those early projects were some of the first elixir in production perhaps in the world 
Um, I think a lot of people have a lot of trepidation around pulling in new languages and new frameworks. And even today, I think a lot of organizations will say that they hesitate to reach for Elixir because whatever the community is new, it's hard to hire for. Um, it's something that we hear a lot with newer frameworks within Elixir in particular. I hear it a lot around live view. Oh, it's not stable yet. You know, I don't feel I can use it in production. Um, and, you know, I, I always want to dig into those arguments and kind of refute them. So I'm curious, what made you feel that you could or must reach for Elixir even when it was still so very young? Oh, yeah. So that, that's a I'm, I'm so happy you're, you're asking the question. So like uh I would say that normally I'm a very risk averse person, you know, like I typically uh, am not an early adopter. I might be like just observing some some stuff, but not really uh, using it uh, in production, right? And so Elixir was uh, perhaps the only one or one of the very few exceptions to that uh, rule. Uh, but like when I, when I was looking at Elixir, you know, and I was familiar with Beam, with Erlang, right? So that helped. Uh, and uh, basically, you know, Elixir is kind of like, I'm not, I don't want to say icing on the cake, but it's like a sort of a thin-ish layer on top of this very, uh, very stable and super mature technology, right? So compared to Erlang, uh, everything is like super fresh and uh, immature. Uh, and Elixir just adds like some sort of a flavor to it to make it, uh, let's say, more usable or productive. That, that would be sort of my take on Elixir. And so like it was, I think, 0.7 version, and I was just looking at it. And uh, I was able to convince myself that this this is like a, you know this shouldn't break the production that this works fine this shouldn't add any so any problems, and uh, I also have to say uh, so starting with Elixir and then uh, all of the major sort of libraries uh, in Elixir like Phoenix and uh, everything from the Phoenix ecosystem and Ecto uh, they are developed with such maturity you know you know like I remember back at zero point seven of uh, Elixir it had like super great documentation. Uh, Jose was always, of course, available for uh, the answers, but like the documentation was already uh, incredibly stable and uh, rich for something which is basically pre 1.0. Uh, there was like there were guides for uh, uh, starting with Elixir. There were guides for migrating from Erlang to Elixir, uh, and there were like uh, a lot of uh, helps and examples inside the docs as well. And so, uh, and I've seen this trend happening later on, like with uh, as I said with Ecto, with Phoenix, with LiveView as well. Uh, even, you know, when it started like a few years ago, uh, it was still uh, pretty, it looked like pretty stable and pretty, pretty well developed way, uh, you know, before, before it reached the current shape and it's still not in uh, 1.0 as far as I understand. Right. Uh, so, uh, and, you know, basically I think that this product, you know, that they, they seem pretty mature. Ultimately the, the magic behind them is always the beam. And this is like a very, very stable piece of runtime, uh, like you know, being developed for uh, almost 30 years uh, now. And uh, that makes me pretty confident uh, together with the experience that I had that it's going to work just fine. So Sasha, one of the things that you said is that there's a, this thin veneer, this thin layer that sits on top. And you mentioned two different things. You mentioned the language and also the libraries that are on top. What was it about the language features that, that said, hey, this might be worth leaving this mature language of, of Erlang, um, I mean, at least on the surface, syntactically, this, this might be worth absorbing this, this kind of, this new ecosystem and language. What made it worthwhile for you? Oh, yeah, this, this is such a great question, which I find always difficult to answer. There are like these teeny tiny little things. It feels like, uh, you know, I don't know if you have it in English, like the opposite of uh, 
uh, thousand paper cuts, you know, so just a bunch of these small improvements, none of which by itself is necessarily spectacular, but when you add them up, uh, you know, they, they just help. So like uh, one of my favorite things, which, which I didn't even realize at the time, uh, but now I definitely do, are protocols, right? So we have like this uh, I think that doesn't exist in Erlang, that you have this like an abstract contract, and uh, basically, you can then implement the contract for the data structure. But what's most interesting is that you can implement it even for the structure that you don't own, that you don't own the code of that structure, right? And so you can wire the generic logic with uh, some other piece of logic, even though, though you don't own neither the generic logic nor that uh, other piece of logic, right? And uh, the best demonstration of that is enum module, right? So we have this enum. And it has a bunch of these, and we have stream, which is like the counterpart. So they have like a bunch of these functions for working with enumerations. They're like the Swiss army knife of, uh, you know, doing loops and iterations and transformation. And uh, you can work with these functions for whichever enumerable structure you use, like whether it's a map or it is a list, right? Or some of your own custom structures, it just works. The streams themselves are like a custom structure added later, right? But you use the same set of functions uh, to work with those things. Uh, it doesn't work like that in Erlang. You know, you, you have list uh, module and you have a maps module, right? And uh, then you use one or the other depending on which data structure do you use. And they have like some different set of functions. Uh, and that makes it kind of more difficult, you know, to to, to reason about, especially because uh, occasionally you might find some function in one module which does not necessarily exist in another, right? So that's like a, a great example of what I liked about Elixir. Another example... Uh, would would be like for example the if expression right so uh for those of you who have been working with erlang know that if always have to have uh both both branches uh so you you need to have if true and if false or otherwise it will crash which is a feature by design but it, uh, frequently in erlang code you would have uh if with basically a dummy else branch you know with which does nothing, right? Uh, and it kind of adds a little bit of noise, you know, and uh, in uh, Elixir, that's kind of a nicer, uh, b better done because you, you you can basically drop the the, the alternative branch and then the, the result of the expression is considered to be nil, which is also one thing that Elixir standardizes on. Uh, Erlang has, like, occasionally it has undefined atom and occasionally uh, I think it used uh, some custom, other, other custom results, you know, it, it wasn't really always sure, like what what, what does it mean to have uh, nothing, and uh, then also one of my favorite things perhaps uh, is the fact that variables can be rebound. You know, again, very small things, are very controversial from the standpoint of Erlang programmers. I was bitten uh, on multiple occasions in Erlang production because you know you would always have to have like this state one, state two, state three, and so on variables, and then somewhere occasionally. I would be using the wrong suffix. I would be using, say, state seven instead of state eight uh, in a place. And then I got some weird results, uh, which were like uh, randomly appearing. So it was working on my machine, but not in production. Uh, I, I recall vividly once having that kind of situation. And so like with Elixir, uh, you you can avoid that by rebinding. And then especially with the pipe operator, uh, you can even frequently avoid uh, those variables. And so like those are the things that I recall originally that... Uh, uh, I really grew attracted to, you know, but a bunch of such small things. Those are just a few examples of such things, you know, and don't even get me started on macros. Yeah, yeah. So I, I love the word that you said, noise, right? It's like all these abstractions that work together kind of work together to reduce the noise. 
And, and you said it a couple of ways. One of the things that you said was the, the pipe operator. Well, the pipe operator only works because the order of the arguments is kind of made uniform within within the library. And that's that's yeah. that's a small detail, but it turns out to be huge in the overall scheme mm. of the language, right? And Precisely. then and then you kind of look at things like behaviors where there's the idea of macros where the code that you were generating with the Emacs key for gen server <laughs> in the Erlang ecosystem becomes a macro generated code in the Elixir mm. system. And and we see that over and over that these abstractions they they start at the right point. You know, it's like a great guitar player starts playing at the right point and stops playing when, when they need to, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we have code generation in the Elixir ecosystem too, but it's appropriately applied and it's applied on top of this, this wonderful layer of abstraction. So yeah, mm-hmm. love your answer, especially the part about noise. Yeah, yeah, very, very nicely. Uh, the, the, the stuff that you mentioned, like so, for when we talk about like Gen Server, you, you you probably most know how it looks like or how it used to look like implementing a Gen Server in Erlang. You had, a, had to have a bunch of these callbacks, right? And so, in, in Elixir, you could have like use Gen Server. Originally, it didn't even require the init callback; it pro- provided the default. Now, I think uh, basically you should implement the init callback, which makes sense. But like with a lot less boilerplate, you can start with a Gen Server, for example. Uh, and then also the thing that you mentioned about the order of the argument, which is standardized. This is a really good point, which I recall vividly that uh, that I really enjoyed. And I find this order more natural, like, especially with innumerable operations such as, you know, uh, map or reduce, you know. So like when you take a look at the map, you know, the first argument is the thing that you're mapping over. The second argument is the function, the mapper, right? And in Erlang, it goes the opposite. Uh, and uh, also for the fold in Erlang, right, which is reduced for us, it had like this weird order of argument. And I recall, like I would always put comma and comma. So I just left blank spaces for the arguments. And then I start with the third argument, then go to the first one and then write the second one. Uh, and like that doesn't really make sense, you know. So the order of argument in reduce, I find much more intuitive, you know, like I'm reducing over this, I'm reducing into this, and this is the, each step of the reduce transformation. This, this is super intuitive to me, you know. Yeah, the benefits of a fresh start, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you can do what I'm doing and work with both Elm and Elixir at the same time, which both offer the same pipe operator, but the reverse <laughs> uh, argument order. That never gets confusing. I used to write uh, in my early days Elixir and Ruby uh, in parallel, so that, that was pretty fun. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so I hear you're making a new book. What's that about? Well, it's actually the old book, but the new edition, right? Uh, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's happening. It's been uh, I actually just had to to, to double check. Uh, it has been four years since the last uh, the last edition came out, and so and I guess you know it's gonna take like about a year uh, until it's fully released. So it's gonna be like five years. It's, it's been a while, right? And so we, we're doing the update. Last version I read had hash maps in it. Uh, oh, that was the first edition. Yes. Yeah. So I think I bought the package where I get got the physical book and got the ebook of the first edition, but I didn't realize it was the first edition. So it was a bit like, yeah, this mm. was hash maps really really in the second edition? No, probably not. <laughs> yeah, they're not. What are the major changes that end up happening with, with a new edition mm. of this? Right, so uh, 
it's not gonna be a lot of changes actually uh basically uh the, the main thing is that uh, compared to the second edition, now we have releases built in uh, the language uh, or it's part of the mixed task that happened like fairly uh, quickly after the second edition was out, you know, and I, and I was just thinking, you know, like uh, uh, Sophie and Bruce, your book is still not out yet, right? Uh, and live view is actually much, seems much more volatile uh, or frequently changing. Uh, <laughs> so, so, you yeah. know... Uh, it's going to be fun, right? You Basically, you know, you publish a book and it's pretty much out of date uh, as, as it goes out. You know, that happened for the second edition, with the second edition for me. Uh, like, uh, basically, I published it and then uh, the new releases came out. And uh, so, you know, it, it felt like weird to immediately go to the next update. But uh, it's been a while. And I would say that, like, even on paper, it sounds a little bit bad if we say, like, uh, the Elixir in Action works on... 1.7 you know so the language hasn't really changed all that much from the standpoint of the book but uh, we will make like a bunch of these smaller uh, updates uh, the releases being the the most major one so i hate saying this because you know it's it's true but but i worked with the pragmatic bookshelf for a long time but this is this is my favorite elixir book it's the one i wish i'd written <laughs> and i think that you kind of short you sell yourself a little bit short because it's not just the changes in the language. It's the ideas in the book that are so durable and lasting and shape the way so many people in Elixir code. This is just marvelous, marvelous creation. And um, I wish I'd, I wish I'd written that book, Sasha. Oh, well, well thank, thank you. You know, that, that, that's really, I'm really so happy to, to hear that, especially coming from another book author, uh, you know, and so, uh, I mean, that Pragmatic has a really, really strong, uh, strong catalog. And uh, I just want to say that, like, I, I don't treat Elixir in Action as a comp- competitor or any other book as a competitor, you know, uh, more as a complement. And this is what I really like about the Elixir space, uh, where it feels that like, like these books uh, work together. I read a bunch of uh, reports, uh, people, for example, reading, Dave's book and my own some somehow in parallel you know they would start with Dave and then uh, they uh, after some chapters they went to my book and then go back go back to Dave's one and uh, somehow use both uh, and uh, yeah I recall when I was starting to write this book you know like I was basically you know very anonymous uh, had zero experience and you know I deliberately designed it uh, not to compete with uh, programming elixir uh, as much as I could uh, you know, because uh, I, I didn't want, you know, how do you compete, compete even compete with Dave Thomas, right? He, basically, this is not what you do, but it doesn't even make sense to do that in my in my view, you know. So I want to bring something else to the table. And I would say that like Elixir in Action is a book which is uh, more focused on the OTP parts and the concurrency parts. Yeah, I, want, I wanted to kind of echo that a bit. Um, I, I remember I remember the first edition fondly. Maggie, you can put some like, you know, flashback sound, sound. Um, you know, one of the first books that, that I picked up, not the first book, but it's, but what I appreciated about it, you know, the books that were floating around at the time were programming Elixir, uh, the little Elixir and OTP book was another one that was sort of floating around in those early days. Um, Elixir in action was not afraid to say the word Erlang, like in the chapter, in chapter one, which I really appreciated. Um, because, you know, like when we're sort of talking to people about Elixir early on, you know, pitching it early on. We say, oh, it's built on this like rock solid platform. The beam's been around for 30 years. Um, you know, there's, even if the language is young, the, the the base is strong. So like, you know, there's there's this thing. But then you read a book and it's like, when did we talk about Erlang at all? And your book goes like 
know, you know, head in. These are the Erlang libraries, not just you can call them if you need them. No, you need them. And these, this is how you call them. And this is how you work with them. And that was such a revelation for me because it made, it made, you know, making the argument easier, right? We can use these distribution tools. We can use these underlying concurrency primitives. We can dive in and like reach past what they've exposed and use the underlying supervisor library. Early, the early days were kind of scary because you had to kind of like mm. you know, sidestep some stuff that wasn't built yet, but that option was there. And I think it was your book that really had uh, that eye-opening effect that, you know, you, you do exist in the world of Erlang and that's not just okay. That's mm. awesome. Yeah. 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 I mean, Erlang is really the, you know, this big thing that we are all uh, building upon. And uh, as I always say, even in my talks, you know, I think it's, I always go to the Erlang bits or the Beam bits, right? So this, uh, these bits, which are uh, common for all of these other, these languages working on this platform. And I recall when I was like uh, describing this book, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, Manning came to me like, would you be interested in writing a book for us? And uh, then I had to pitch the book, you know, uh, and so I basically describe it as, you know, oh, we're just, you know, going to talk about how to use Elixir to interface with Erlang, right, to interface with this uh, runtime, you know, so this is how I'm thinking about it, you know, and I think the original title that I proposed uh, was a very, very, you know, crappy title, not, not marketing title, it was something like Practical Introduction to Elixir and Erlang, you know, like this, I don't even know if it would fit on, uh, on the front page. <laughs> so did you pitch to Marian Bacci? Uh, I didn't get the chance to, to meet him, which is kind of funny, or to talk to him even, uh, because uh, he's from Croatia, just like me. Uh, but uh, and there were like some even some talks when he he was visiting here. Uh, I mean, he lives, as far as I understand, in uh, the USA. But there were some ideas to, to meet, but somehow it didn't happen, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, no, uh, but but uh, there was a uh, Michael Stevens from Manning, so uh, he basically you know approached me, and uh, we we always you know he always comes to me like. Uh, is it time to do the next edition now? And so, yeah, and we, we discuss all the details. Yeah, and maybe the title was a good move, just tightening it down a little, little bit. But you also have one of the <clears throat> most referenced and beloved like Elixir and Erlang talks with the, the soul of Elixir and Erlang, I believe it's called. You hit the the book that I hear most people recommend, especially for programmers transitioning into Elixir. It's not the one I hear referenced most often for new beginners. And I believe you state in the book that it's sort of targeted at programmers moving into hmm. uh, the language and the runtime. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, yeah, this is, this is it's great that you mentioned. I think that we are actually like in the we have a bunch of books, right, in the in Elixir space. And this is mostly credit to uh, the, the Pragmatic uh, catalog, right? I don't know, Bruce, how much you're still involved with that. Uh, are, you, are you, like, quote, just, unquote, an author now? Or are you still working on the, on the, on the publishing part? Actually, the other person working on the publishing path, the, the torch has been passed. Sophie is, uh, is oh, the editor for the well, Elixir line. And yeah, she's, yeah. she's very good, better than I ever was. Okay, congratulations. Yeah, so, so let, me, <laughs> let me pitch you an idea, which I mean, probably you already are thinking about, but like, I think that we're lacking the something which is like introduces Elixir to non-programmers, right? Mm -hmm. So there is one book that I, I just cannot remember the title. I would have to look it up. There was uh, there was one thing which is which was like self-published. Uh, 
oh, but I, but I'm not vlogging. But but that's basically it as far as I know. And sometimes I'm asked like, you know, okay, like what would you advise to a non-programmer? And uh, I'm I'm not really sure. Yeah, I, I totally agree that that's a resource that I think is missing in our community. And I think it's something that Stephen and I have talked about a lot because we used to both teach for the Flatiron School and we taught Ruby to folks that were sort of career change programmers, if that makes sense. People that had not probably not really written more than a dozen lines of code in their life. Um, and we've long wondered what it would look like to offer something similar for folks coming into Elixir. What is that experience like if you're learning in particular a functional language for your first programming language? How does that change the way you think um, and model the world around you in code? So I would love to see that book get written. And I'm wondering, uh, are you offering, Sasha? <laughs> no, <laughs> you're I, pitching me, I, you're going to write this book for me? Uh, then, uh, I would love to, but, but I cannot fit it. But yeah, I, yeah, I would love no, to do I it, totally but I cannot understand. find the time. But uh, I definitely think that it's something that uh, we need in the community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that book is a live book, though, right? Because mm-hmm. it seems like it seems like it needs to be something that um, that you can try without friction, and it needs concepts introduced. With a rapid feedback of of just attempting, of of attempting inline and getting ideas right and making little mistakes, right? So we all we all talk about this idea of pain, um, pain lubricating the, the learning process, right? And I think that that's that that's important. But I think that a bunch of little mistakes is what you need in the begin in the beginning. You need to be able to start very quickly. You need to be able to start with little mistakes. I think that live books should change the way that we do these kinds of things. If if we can if we can get the right titles published and delivered in the right way. Mm, that, that's that's a pretty pretty interesting idea. Yeah, uh, live book is definitely hitting off. I, I don't know. Do you actually know of already of some such material or? Well, so the Elixir community is already starting to embrace this idea, and if you go to the Learn tab um, on. On the the live books, there's already a ton of information, and it's probably where some of that code needs to live. But I think that there are some there's some things that are missing, right? So one of the things that I think that would help the um, the programming community in in all languages, but especially in the Elixir language, it's such a great utility language. And one of the problems with that is you were talking about the enum module and the list module. There are so many functions in there. So when you're teaching people how to fish, it becomes oppressive, right? It's like, okay, so, um, so I mean, let's imagine with me, you know, Stephen's, you know, flashback sound. Imagine with me that that you're trying to, um that you're trying to basically teach someone to explore. So you say, well, let's do that from IEX or Livebook. It doesn't matter. You know, you import the helpers and it's it's basically the same thing. But then you say, okay, I have a list of something and I want to go somewhere with it. And I don't know where I want to go yet. So the first thing you do is you get your IEX info or some type of documentation. And then you can see all the protocols, all the, the, um, the, the module definitions, and the main data type. And then the second step that you teach someone is, okay, let's go dig into what functions those modules export, Mm. right? And that list is too long. 
it is just too long because not only do you have to get to each one, you have to dig into and find the purpose of each one of those functions. And wouldn't it be nice to just have a piece of metadata on a function that says, is this core learning elixir or not? Right? Because then you could just have one option that says, hey, just quiet down, tamp down some of the functions that are not as common and necessary. Mm. And by doing that, you can you can reduce the footprint of something that someone who, who is learning Elixir needs to needs to take on. Mm. Oh yeah, that, that's an interesting idea. And ultimately when 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 you talk about learning the I would say one of the main tricks is to eliminate or uh, you know just put aside as much of the stuff as you can so people are not overwhelmed with the bunch of material and so yeah that, that, will, that will make total sense especially if, if it's somehow integrated with the tooling and so then you have like in live book if you're exploring then you just get this uh, small list of you know like essential functions right and that's not an elixir problem right that's a that's a functional programming problem and um, really just a, a programming problem in general, the more business-centric languages mm. are the ones with, with the biggest yeah. footprint because they're, they're sharp knives, right? And we want to we wanna work with sharp knives because it makes, makes us more effective. Mm. Yeah, well, I've actually heard the feedback a number of times or heard people sort of complain a little bit about the teaching material available in the Elixir community being for like particular groups like either you already know programming and you're getting into elixir by picking up your second or third language or you are sort of um going well if you're going at it from the start but have some language in your pocket there's very few resources that teach elixir uh from kind of first principles or at least as the first language and that's a thing i find sort of fascinating like what do you cut when you don't have uh, like a procedural op language whatever in the backdrop like i would probably cut the if statement <laughs> right right and and also it's so that question is where's the glue right where do you start with in terms of glue so Groxio works with a lot of object-oriented developers, probably, I don't know, somewhere around half our customers are coming from other object-oriented languages. And one of the things that we start with is this concept of how you build a pipeline of things, right? And it's not just put the major argument first and you, know, you, you put this um, onto a conveyor belt and then, and then um, out pours this, this result. And then you just keep on laying the same things on the same. It's also, it's not just doing the work. It's also preparing the work and showing the work. But when you can do that, it kind of, it lays out, it, it kind of opens up Elixir by starting with that, with that element of glue, but that's only in the functional core layer, right? So there are similar pieces of glue that that Sasha is really into on on the boundary layers and how you de design a robust boundary. You know, we're using tag tuples or exceptions, and this is where the concurrency lives. And so you have these concepts that layer, and you know, we start to talk about those things in designing Elixir systems with OTP. But I think that soon we're going to be talking. We're going to be taking a second pass at that. 
um, and kind of working in some of the concepts of CRC. And also, I think I think there's a there's a big question for how do you do persistence well, right? I think that contexts are a start, but I do think that if you marry your functional core to your database structure too soon, you miss a lot of opportunities. And we need to that's that's some that's another concept that people who are learning languages need to get. I think that was the part of um, your most recent book with James Bruce that like confounded me and Stephen the most. And I think we wrote probably some of the worst code of our lives trying to very much over-engineer like a persistence abstraction layer. Uh, And I haven't sort of revisited those concepts really since that time. So I don't know if I would still be as confounded. Um, so I guess I'll just say that I agree that there's an opportunity there for sort of more content, um, especially at that beginner level on that subject. Yeah. And also we want to fold in some of the CRC, right? Some of the, some of the stuff that Sasha and I were talking about, about the pipes and the structure of the arguments, um, because that provides the core glue for people who are designing very early in their Elixir careers, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. What, do you, what goes in your module? Well, most of your public functions that go in a module are surrounding the same data type. They either create it or they um, they translate from it or both, right? Um, all the arguments do. And then there are a whole lot of rules that go around that that, that I'd like a, another shot at with that, with that B book. Uh, I've got another question for you, Sasha, as we're kind of digging into book topics in general and books that you've written and that Bruce has written and that we've written. Um, something that I think we aim to do with the live view book is, you know, yes, teach people live view. Um, but the documentation more or less teaches you live view. I think the documentation is great. We're also trying to put together a narrative around how we think or how we want people to be writing live view and architecting live view. And we also want it to be in case that's not enough uh, of a tall order. We also want it to be a pretty comprehensive resource on Phoenix in general, since I don't believe that folks really need to reach for Phoenix without live view these days, although perhaps not every single view needs to be live. So that's kind of our like set of goals around the live view book. What's your vision of Elixir in action and how it kind of fits into the community? Like what itch does that serve to scratch aside from just, you know, read this to learn Elixir? Yeah, this this is a very good question, right? So um, especially because uh, I find myself... Uh, uh, so as a background, you know, I, I'm doing in the past few years, I'm, I switched to like mentoring slash consulting uh, for companies, you know, helping teams, people uh, work with Elixir uh, effectively in production. And uh, I find myself, you know, saying one thing to the team and another thing in the book, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, the thing is, you know, that uh, like Elixir in action specifically does not go into any design patterns or any sort of more uh, elaborate structures of code organization deliberately to drive the point about technology cleaner, right? So uh, Elixir Action is focused on like, you should use processes like this, for example. I'm going to mention that like uh, every process should live under some supervisor, right? Because this is, in my view, a good OTP uh, design, you know? Uh, but the code itself, uh, and especially when it comes to testing code, you know, is not necessarily an example of what I would call uh, well-structured code, you know. Uh, and uh, I actually, you know, uh, I had a, I even had, I think, a, 
a talk uh, a bit about Phoenix and I'm doing like internal talks for my current clients. And I'm like thinking about maybe doing some uh, some sort of further talks on that topic publicly. Uh, so to me, the, the code generated by the Phoenix, uh, the PHX new and the generators uh, is good code for learning, especially learning by experimenting. I think that this is where Phoenix succeeds very well. Uh, I don't think that it's really good code, uh, well-organized code for uh, working as a team effort, you know, over some period of time. I think that there are a bunch of different changes that have to be made, but I think that this is a natural trade-off, right? So either you're learning your, or you're teaching technology, in which case you want to set aside mostly some of these design patterns, right? Because they get in the way. Uh, or, you know, uh, you can say like, okay, now you know, like the mechanics of it, here's how you organize it, right? So, so that's kind of uh, the opinion I'm thinking, my opinion on the topic. But uh, circling back to, you know, uh, what you said, I'm really curious to see. I still didn't pick up the book, you know, uh, but I think that it's now definitely time, if not overdue. I'm curious to, to see how, how well uh, you, you attacked it, you know, uh, like if, you, uh, if it works well when you, when you combine it all together. So what would you say are the parts of the generated bits of Phoenix that kind of fall down for mm. for you or we, that you have seen cause trouble? Because I, I'm not thrilled with kind of default context and stuff. And we've had Chris Keithley on the show, which has, I think, probably the opposite end of a view on context from you at least like I, I wrote a blog post summarizing essentially what what you've written about it and what he'd shared about it and i think they're pretty much the opposite which kind of tells me that the default might just be kind of the in the middle solution and in this okay. case might be a poor design if two really opinionated people end up <laughs> on on opposite sides of how to tackle it yeah, these are this is this is the topic you know, which is kind of always difficult to discuss because you have a bunch of different opinions. Uh, I ultimately, ended up mostly doing like technical talks because, like you know, I, I describe you have this and you have that, and uh, maybe do some demos, and everyone's happy, right? Uh, and it's more difficult when you talk about uh, design styles. Uh, uh, but uh, okay, let, let's maybe circle a little, little bit back. You know, if you all remember the time before Phoenix contexts, uh, everyone was like stashing the code in controllers, and uh, that includes myself as well. And I think that we can all agree that that mostly or basically doesn't work unless you're doing like uh, some prototyping or some, again, you know, learning, initial learning, playing by experiment and whatnot, you know, then you don't want to have any sort of elaborate design patterns. But but really the problem is, you know, uh, all of us, you know, we, we kind of start learning in this, we write like this hacky code and it's perfectly fine when we're learning and when we're playing, but then ultimately the production code just ends up being the extension of that, you know, built on, on the same principle and this, these same patterns. This is what I see over and over, not just in Elixir, but even before that, you know, basically what you start with is what you end up with. And so uh, Phoenix had some version, I forgot which one was, uh, but uh, a few years ago, they introduced this context as a sort of a lightweight nudge into the direction like you shouldn't be putting all of your logic in the controllers. And I think that this makes sense, right? So this is, I think, a really good choice, very lightweight choice. It's, you know, it's not the context is basically not a concept in Phoenix when you think about it. It exists just in the generators, but there is not like context module uh, inside the Phoenix library or something like that. You know, it's just the one module you delegate like from the controller, you take the parameters and you delegate to the context. And now you have like 
something sort of resembling the business logic. So I think that it's kind of pointing you in that direction. I think that it's a pretty sets a pretty nice trade off between you know still lightweight teaching, but with some kind of hint about you know more elaborate design patterns. That having said, I think that this uh, this style is still not enough for uh, production code of almost any side. Maybe if you're working like on super small services, uh, uh, that may work. But then you probably don't even need context anyway. Maybe then controller is just fine. So uh, the thing about well, one of my pet peeves, one of the things that I really dislike, but I see a lot in production code is people just taking this context approach literally. And what they do is, you know, you end up with a controller taking the params, which is what I call a free-form map. The keys are strings. We don't know which keys are in there, like are the required keys in there or not. So they take these params and just pass them on without any sort of post-processing. They pass them on immediately to the context. And so now your business function accepts a free-form map of a string to anything. And, you know, your business function... uh, will accept the map, which maybe is missing some keys. Maybe it has invalid types for uh, some keys uh, and whatnot. Maybe it has some keys that you don't support. You, know, you don't know. Like if I'm looking at some business function, right? Some context function, when I want to call it, like it accepts a map, it accepts params. And, and what sort of params? You know, I need to read through the entire code to understand it. So that that's one thing that I don't like. You know, uh, I think that they should be more stronger type. Uh, but then when I look into this function, uh, then I want to like look into the implementation to understand how am I supposed to use it. It's like your first red flag. Uh, and I look into the implementation and then I have to go further because uh, Phoenix does, the generators do what I strongly disagree with for production code. They put the change set function inside the schemas as public functions. So these change set functions, for me, they are implementation detail. They do not belong to the schemas at all. Uh, they, I like to keep them as private functions inside the context. Uh, and typically, you know, uh, in a well-organized code base, you will have like this context, single context module will use these change set functions. They can still be reused, you know, because they are within that same module, but they do not have to be a part of the public API, uh, like of internal API of any sort of, uh, module. And uh, I think like a good test when, when you do the PHX auth new, when you generate your code for authentication, you know, I just actually recently took a look on that uh, again. Uh, basically, when you just look at the context functions and uh, the schema functions, uh, you're going to end up with something like uh, close to 40 public functions uh, generated by auth new. A bunch of these micro functions, which are basically, you know, just implementation details, which uh, build this change set or that change set or build, build this query, you know, this also shouldn't be a public function. Function that builds query can be internal function inside the context module as well, you know. So this stuff belongs together uh, with this procedural logic that uses it, you know. And so uh, Phoenix uh, PHX sort is going to generate a lot of code, which is basically public code. A bunch of public functions. Most of it is just public functions, uh, and uh, this kind of you know fails to to me you know to design the API in the sense that it hides the implementation details and uh, gives you like the too long didn't read you know gives you like uh, this is what you're supposed to be doing you know so it's not focused on intended behavior and I find very difficult to read such code you know you end up jumping here and there and back and forth and whatnot and I think that in this part I would most certainly agree with with Chris uh, Keatley, right? And I think that Chris and I share this uh, same uh, same sentiment of, you know, making uh, different decisions compared to 
the beaten track, you know, the default way that Phoenix does. And so I typically make a lot of changes to the to the Phoenix uh, generators, and I don't use generators other than to scaffold the initial project. Actually, you touched on something there that I think is the probably the primary division between how you and Chris choose to change contexts. Because he was sort of, no, no, make it a fat controller, just put it all in there. And I know that he was working on a microservices architecture with a bunch of microservices that, and I think they were like two people maintaining a bunch of different elixir microservices and what he wanted was to not have to go spelunking into deep nested functions which which the context tend to tend to produce but rather see everything that's happening at the call site because these are fairly small services and as you were saying for larger projects this can become untenable or very very messy (laughs) Um, but if I, you're dealing with small, intentionally small, but production services, maybe the layers is what gets, uh, what kind of causes the trouble. So if if you have like small services, yeah, that, that's fine. But I mean, like uh, maybe I, I kind of failed to to give you the higher level idea of uh, looking from the standpoint of Phoenix or for controllers. Basically, the idea is in the controller, what you want to do is you take these params. You give the structure to params. You always have to do that, pretty much. So, uh, and in the generated code, it's mostly implicit. It's like pushed all the way deeper until you do the cast inside the chain set function, right? So, I like to do give it this structure uh, immediately as soon as I take those params. Uh, and if you think about it, if you do, for example, GraphQL, then you get this. I'm not going to say for free, but you get this automatically with the GraphQL schema. Right, so you specify your schema, and if some params are missing or they are uh, of a wrong type, you're not even going to end up in your resolver. You know, you just uh, the GraphQL discards this before it even gets to your code, based on the schema. Right, so this is stuff that I want to do inside the controller. I give the structure to the params, then I pass those params to the quote business function unquote. There I do my stuff, and it returns the result, and then I format the result. Uh, like to HTML, JSON, or whatever. And the reason why I like to do this is because when I want to focus on the business behavior, I go to the context and I don't think about, you know, this casting of params, this JSONs and whatnot, you know. And so it sets my mind off those things, you know, so I can think about the business behavior. Uh, And likewise, when I want to think about the presentation, you know, the input and the output, then I can focus on that without thinking about the business behavior. And so basically the... This whole idea is just to, you know, uh, present the information and organize it in some chunks that can be understood uh, in sort of isolation. They are, of course, coupled together, but uh, you can basically mostly work on one or another uh, most of the time, you know. And so, uh, but yeah, if you work on small services and you don't have really much of the logic there, sure, well, of course you can do it in control. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the ideas that I liked that, that you said was that... Um... That in the boundary, the the context, uh, that's that's where you deal with uncertainty. That that doesn't really belong in the court. I like that. I like that. Um, yeah, I'm I'm kind of on the fence with this one because I see the chain set philosophically is a converter. It's like a bridge from the core to the boundary. So it kind of works in either place for me. But um, but I so like. Chain- 
Change it is a really, really well designed thing, but it's kind of easy to misuse, or at least according to my own personal views. Uh, but I, I like to use, uh, for example, in controller, I like to use schemaless changes for doing this validation of params. So I would like cast the params there, and it gives me a map. And then I have a map of atom keys and properly typed uh, stuff, or I return an error. And I typically, you know, write like a small wrapper that's kind of declarative, and so I can do this in the GraphQL style. Right, uh, but then also in the core layer, in the context layer, I'm fine working with change sets, right? So you, there I want to do the validations, the business level validations. You don't want to do that in the controller, right? Because uh, basically they are, uh, those validations work always the same, whether you use Phoenix Live Views, Dead Views, REST, or GraphQL, or, or whichever other interface, right? And so they are basically the core behavior of the system. And so I use change set, of course, uh, inside the core for those things. Uh, and I don't mind returning change set as an error. Uh, I think that this is a really wonderful mechanism, you know, a freeform key value of fields and strings, uh, which you can return and then you can easily render. And I'm perfectly fine with that. Uh, so yeah, I think that change sets definitely have their place in the core as well. But I think it's critical to, for me at least to, when we talk about production code, I want to remove the uncertainty very early. As soon as I'm in the controller, I want to cast those freeform params into something that has a structure. Because as the reader of the code, when I'm reading some code and there are params, I have no idea what, what what is this code, you know. And I find myself when I'm reading such code, I basically just sprinkle IO inspect and then I run tests uh, and then I try to figure out from those tests if they are hopefully exhaustive enough. I can figure out like okay, we have these params and that params, and maybe you know I have to read a lot of implementation code and interpret in my mind. It's a very very difficult, very mentally exhausting reading such code, especially when such code base uh, grows, you know. And it's not just my personal opinions. I have like teams and people, you know, just uh, asking for my services and approaching me saying like, okay, we, we don't like this code, but we don't know how, how should we organize it to actually be able to work with it. Yeah, I love that concept. So you're, you're talking about basically splitting the idea of an early pass, an early pass over the params to make that more predictable, um, casting, setting the structure, and doing some some early ferreting out of, of bad data, yeah. and then is is so what what task would happen at that layer? So I like to call this so you have normalization versus validation, right? So normalization is giving a structure to the input, uh, nothing more. Basically similar to what GraphQL schema does, right? In the GraphQL schema, you say like I have these fields, they are of that type. This field is uh, required. This field is optional. Uh, and then if uh, your input doesn't match the schema, your code doesn't even hit, right? So actually, typically, it's not going to even uh, go outside of the client layer, right? But if it does go uh, to your server, then your uh, the absent library is basically going to reject it before it hits your own code, right? And so if you don't use GraphQL, uh, if you use like your regular stuff, then you have to do this manually or you can build fairly easily a declarative layer with schemaless uh, uh, ecto chain sets, which are really beautiful. Uh, and you can approximate like pretty good uh, parts of GraphQL for that. And uh, that's normalization. And then we have validation. Validation are business rules, right? So like, uh, should uh, can this value be between these, like say this value is an integer, but not every integer is a valid integer, right? And so uh, you could say like, okay, does it fit the business requirements? And so this is the stuff that I would do inside the context slash core layer, you know, and again, you frequently using change sets because they, they work pretty, pretty well for that. Does that make sense? Very much so. Thank you. It does. And I'm, I'm going to have to rework some code. I 
Yeah, but, and I got to say, I frequently see like uh, the same set of issues now in the in the past uh, few years. I've been doing this uh, consulting slash mentoring. Uh, mostly, again, people, you know, just start from the Phoenix generators, which are good, again, for the teaching and prototyping. Uh, but basically, they just, uh, you know, they, ju- they just do... Uh, they just do the same uh, patterns, you know, as they scale their code. And uh, I think that as a community, we have to maybe work more on, uh, you know, figuring out like how, how should we organize the code when we want to work on it as a team effort over over time when the code base grows to be larger and larger. And before we get into our final question, <laughs> makes it sound like we plan our questions. That's not entirely true. But before we start wrapping up, I wanted to make sure we share before listeners tune out that we have a giveaway. So Sasha and his nice publisher Manning have agreed to share three codes for the Elixir in Action 3rd edition ebook. So you're getting the new one. You're not getting the previous one. You're getting the fresh one. And the way to get these, uh, just to make sure that we only give them to our listeners, our dear, beloved listeners, is to post on Mastodon at lavik at fosterdon.org. So that's Lars Wikman. That's me uh, on fosterdon.org. And if you can find me there, that's the challenge. Uh, And if you can get a message at me, you will be in the list of entries and we will pull three of you. There's also a code for those that might not win or actually want to send some cash Sasha's way, which is PODBEAM23, and that's a 35% off discount code. Good for all products in all formats. So PODBEAM23 at Manning. That's very nice, I think. Uh, Give away some books. Make sure literature keeps happening. I think... um, just reach out and you'll be in the you'll be in the running to win. Thank you, Sasha, for that one. So Sasha, before we wrap it up here, I guess one final question or perhaps set of questions for you. Can you tell us either a little bit about what you're working on these days or what you're excited about working on these days? Or failing that, if you don't want to get into any particulars, um, what are you hoping to see come out of the Elixir community? in the coming months, what directions in general are you excited about? Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, as I said, I've been working as a, as a mentor uh, or consultant. Uh, I kind of don't like the term consultant, so I'm trying to use it as little as possible. But basically, this is what I've been doing for the past few years. I've been working with different teams of different sizes. And, uh, uh, and as I said, you know, I always find kind of the same set of problems. And I would like to speak more about that. You know, I did like, uh, I think two years ago for one client, I actually uh, blogged on their their own uh, blog, a series of posts called Towards Maintainable Elixir. Uh, I also did a keynote called Clarity. And so these two resources are kind of uh, discussed on the topics also that I mentioned uh, here. Uh but there's a lot of stuff to be said there, and I'm still kind of thinking about how to how to you know spread the word or or you know discuss those those things. Uh, they don't really fit a single talk uh, basically. So I'm kind of toying with ideas either about uh, maybe doing workshops or perhaps even a, a small book. But uh, uh, it's kind of you know dif- difficult to find the time uh, because uh, two years ago, almost two years ago, I became a parent, and so you know some priorities have have shifted 
so in my struggle to find a work-life balance. Uh, but anyway, yeah, th- those are some of the things that I would like to do. I do think, you know, having, you know, seeing the same kind of issues with the production code over and over, I think that we are somewhat failing in the, in the teaching resources. You know, I think we're good at teaching technology and people are really good at picking up uh, Elixir and writing even an advanced uh, Elixir and picking up Erlang. And I think that this is where the resources are really working well. Uh, you know, again, you know, Pragmatic also gets a lot of credit for that with the like incredibly large Elixir uh, catalog uh, covering all different kinds of ranges and topics. And so I think we're good in terms of teaching the technology mechanics. I'm not really sure that we're in a good place about teaching kind of code organizational stuff. And there's, I think, a lot of room for uh, improvements uh, there, which is where I would like to see some expansion, uh, uh, whether done by myself and or uh, other people in the community. Uh, You know, and otherwise, uh, I'm watching mostly on the sides, the recent developments in the past few years. I did dabble a little bit with live view i think it's quite an uh, interesting uh, piece of technology uh and really can you know uh make things a lot of simpler in many cases uh then there's this whole uh machine learning direction uh which uh, i basically didn't even look at but i just kind of looked in the news and it's incredible to see uh the stuff that's been uh, going on in there and i'm really uh, really excited to see you know people spreading their ideas in different uh, directions and uh, you know many of which probably were not originally even envisioned you know uh, when this whole stack was being created and so this is kind of exciting and I'm I'm looking forward to see where will it take us. Yeah, I think many of us share uh, exactly those sentiments about some of the newer and more exciting technologies that are coming out of Elixir these days. Uh, I think on that note, we'll wrap it up, although there is, I'm sure, so much more that we could get into. Safta, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation, a great episode. Thank you, Lars and Stephen uh, and Bruce for joining us as well. On our panel of co-hosts, I'll just do a quick shout out and a thank you to our sponsors, Croxio and Andrior. Thank you both for your support uh, and bringing this podcast to our listeners as often as we do. And I very much encourage our listeners to take advantage of those promo codes and or just go out there and get the third edition of Elixir in action. Um, I think it's pretty much essential or required reading for anyone working with Elixir today. So thank you for your work on that, Sasha. And thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, good luck with your book uh, and good luck uh, with uh, the, the podcast and the episodes. And you know, hopefully I'm going to be a guest uh, again at some point. Oh, we would anytime. absolutely love to have you back. Yeah. You could maybe read the codes somewhere random in the in the inside the episode, and so they have to listen to it. And you know, that... <laughs> and this will be first, our first com- code reading. Yeah. <laughs> we'll deliver it in code the whole way. The next letter. <laughs> yeah, maybe spread it around. You know, uh, around the episode. So, like, this is the first part of the code. It starts out literal, and then we start going into riddles. The first letter of this American author's name.